Welcome to The Next Level, Partners Trust podcast series featuring thought leaders and entrepreneurs from both inside the company and beyond. I'm Nick Siegel, and today I'm talking with high-performance psychologist Dr. Michael Gervais and discussing how we find mastery in everything we do. Michael, welcome and thank you for your time today. I truly appreciate it. Great to be here. Thank you. So let's get started. Now, let's get started with your Twitter bio, which says, connecting to the simple joys, high-performance psychology at work, adventurepreneur in action. Let's talk about what that means. If I can say it, let's start there and then you articulate it. Yeah, okay, so let's start with the simple joys. Yeah. Um, I think that, as a, for me, I love the concept, is that can we be present enough to enjoy the simple things in life? Yeah. You know, like the sun on my shoulder, mm-hmm. like eye gaze, like a handshake, like feeling the, 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 the bottom of the wave if we're surfing or whatever it might be. And, you know, it's the engagement with other people that are usually the simple joys. Engagement with nature, other people, and then those quiet moments that we reflect by ourselves. Mm-hmm. So those are the simple joys, I think. And, and so I just want to make sure that I'm um, paying attention to them. Because if we don't, we miss them. Yeah. Well, we're sitting here in a beautiful environment, and you've got a roof deck that's overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And as we said before we came online, that you spend probably more of your time doing your work out there than you do even in this environment, which is lovely. So, Yeah, you know, there's some interesting research about nature. Mm. And um, so if you're not in the position to have um, a, like an ocean view like what we have here, mm-hmm. just having an ocean picture or a picture of nature in your office mm. actually increases focus, uh, duration of focus, as well as intensity. So there's good research around getting connected to nature, whether it's a picture or whether it's through a window pane or actually being in it. Love that. So on that line of visuals in an office environment, because so much of the work that I focus on is dealing with professionals in the real estate trade, and at times they're in an office environment, they're not outside. So there's the imagery of, a, of an ocean view or that nature scene, vision boards, things of that nature where we create that ideal scene that incorporates a host of images. In your opinion, does that become distraction? Is that too much stimulus to be looking at visually, or can that? Yeah, serve? no, I think that like you know, the, let's just start with like the vision board first, which is different than like a beautiful picture, sure. painting, right? Like a vision board. Um, I don't know. It, to me, it feels campy. Mm. It just feels a little cheesy to put up images of what I want to experience later in life. But they it, they work for people. Mm. So for me, it feels like it's a bit much. Now, that being said. Um, there is some good science around taking time to imagine what your future could look like. Mm-hmm. And even more importantly than that, though, is taking time to plan and organize the way to experience that future state that you want. And then my conversation enters into that mix about um, how do we cultivate and train our minds to be more present so that we can string together as many moments as possible. Mm-hmm. And if there is a definition of high performance, if there is a definition of potential, human potential, it would be stringing together moments of being fully present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have this analogy of stepping into the batter's box. World Series, you know, two outs, two men on, you get a hit, you win if you don't, and the world is watching. How do you quiet the mind to that degree? And that's the world you play in, right? So Yeah, that, that is the skill. And 
you know, the difference between World Series and um, preseason mm-hmm. is simply that more people are paying attention. Mm. That's the that's the only real difference. There's a mechanical skill at, at play, which is can I hit the ball? Can I throw the ball? Whatever it is, it's mechanical. And it's difficult and challenging, but the only difference between world anything and uh, yesterday is that more people are watching. So then the question is begged, like, what are you going to do when people watch? Are you going to be different or are you going to be the same? And many people are different as soon as, soon as other people watch. And that becomes um, such a painful experience over time that eventually most of us say, I'm done with that. And the answer or the solution to it is to become aware of your thoughts and to train your mind to be fully present wherever you go. And, you know, it was like 1980 and before, it was a bit taboo to train your mind. And because psychology was labeled, or the primary study of psychology was of people that had a disorder. And it's just not the case anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just flat out not that. There's only three things as humans that we can train. And science is a really important process. We can train our body, we can train our craft, and we can train our mind. And if you want to experience everything that you hope to experience in life, but you're leaving your mind and the activity of your mind to chance, or you're leaving it to your parents to have trained you, or you're leaving it to your knucklehead buddies or friends when you're in high school or whatever, like there's just too much variance in that. So if we can learn from great science, and from the best in the world, how they think and how they use their mind and how they guide their mind, man, it's just such an accelerant to living the life that you want to live, whatever that is, whether that's, like we talked about before, whether that's off access and a little different, or it's you know true and, and pure right down the middle, whatever it is for you, that um, it's just a, a really wonderful time that people are saying, I want to be better and I'm gonna train my mind because I know it's an accelerant towards that. Right. So when you talk about off-access, just define that. Uh, yeah, just off-access. I mean, just the thought that, um, okay, so for example, if you look at traditional Olympic um, skiing, like bump skiing, and they're flying down the hill, and it, it's exactly what we've been doing for a long time in bump skiing, right? Knees are tight, moving down as fast as we can in a straight line. And then when there's a, a jump in place, it was very typical way back to do like a backflip. And it was like this beautiful arc. And then the new school comes in and they said, you know, that looks cool, the backflip looks cool, but what if I cork it out a little bit? And what if I grab one of my skis and just put a little bend in it and flip off access? And it's just, for me, it just, and it looks really cool and it's totally different. And, and that's just that little reminder that cookie cutter is boring right. and being like everybody else is boring and there's nothing authentic about doing what other people are doing but can you do it off access that is true to you and to do that and to do it consistently we have to be able to figure out mastery of something mm-hmm. mastery of craft mastery of mind so that we can go in any environment and authentically express what we've come to understand is true which is not easy well, it takes great trust, I would imagine. And the mastery, I think, gives you that foundation to say, I think I'm ready to explore a broader perspective. So off-access brings more of the creativity into the equation, whereas that regiment of train, 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 so that I, I build a foundation. It sounds like the, the, the difference there or, or the, yeah, the opportunity yeah, yeah, for expansion. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, it, it would be a miss to think that 
to go off axis, you shortcut the core principles. That's a miss. Um, to do the ground, to lay the groundwork and have a rich command of a craft, whether that be um, phone calls or in-person meetings, or whether that's creating a business plan, or you know, creatively wanting to share something new, you have to have a command to be able to sustain that new at a high level, over and over and over again. Anyone that has changed the game in any field, um, they don't just enter the scene and do it differently. They have a rich command of the basic fundamentals, and. It, is, it, would be a, it would be a mistake to think that they don't know the full alphabet, so to speak. They've just put some letters in different places. Sure. And, and that's what creativity really is about. I mean, you look at Picasso, he could, he could paint a pure, striking image, and yet then he went off into, I don't even know how to define what he went off into, but that is his genius, right? That's what Yeah, and, what and when we get into genius, like genius is funky because not everyone recognizes it when it's happening. Mm -hmm. And the line between genius and crazy is, is thin. And like, look at um, Van Gogh, for example, if we stay with the art theme, is that you know, he, he was not heralded as being that guy when he was alive. And so the, the genius word I have such regard for mm -hmm. because it is so rare, so different, so special that it often scares people. And often what I found with working with geniuses is that they have a command of the base, they, they understand the groundwork, the platform and the foundation of the craft, whether that's thinking or doing. And they have, they're easily frustrated because their mind works at different pace and their mind works in different frames. So they see things differently, off access. And most people don't. And so frustration and intolerance is something that is often met with geniuses. It's not easy to be inside of one's mind that it's so rare and so beautiful that the rest of the world wants to feel like they fit into, but they don't. Yeah. Touched by genius as opposed to the, the pursuit of genius. Would you touch on the, on, on the differences yeah, sure. from that perspective? Uh, genius is like, you can't train it. Yeah. It's just, it is. And it's a genetic component. Whatever your, and we all, I think we all have a genius. We all have something that we're genius about. That's, that's an encouraging thought. Yeah. That yeah. we all have that in us. No, we all have something. Yeah. And maybe that's too, I don't know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like uh, too simple of a thought or too Pollyannish of a thought. But I really think that um, what I've seen is that those that have lined up whatever their genius is with their environment and their commitment to have command of that, those are the ones that change the way we understand what is possible in the world. That being said, all of us have a talent. We all have something that's really special and unique about us. And if we can figure out how to commit, to find it, then commit to it, and create an environment around it that supports and challenges it, that's, that's kind of the, the formula, if there's no such thing as a formula, but that is the, the basic mechanics for becoming um, world-class at something. Know your genetic coding. What is that thing that you're special about? Um, commit to doing the work intelligently, support and challenging environment, and see where it goes. Can one get assistance in finding what that genetic coding is? I mean, tough to find it on your own. You're so it's such a you're so close to from a perspective. Is there a support for that? Yeah, I mean, early on in our life, there's a phase um, between the ages of 12 and 19 or 20. And that phase, we're supposed to try on as many hats as we can. 
and its identity development is what's taking place in that phase. And so that, like if we're parents, that would be the point in which we would want to expose our kids to punk rock, to rock and roll, to classic rock, like what jazz, like expose them to all the flavors of life and then see where they naturally start to gravitate toward. And so we need help, right? Most of the time we need help to get exposed to as many flavors or colors or sounds as we can early on. And if we miss that period because our parents are ridiculous <laughs> or our parents miss the boat. Or, or they're myopic because that's the way they've been raised. Yeah, right. And, and like if dad is world class at something or mom's world class at something and they want you to do the same. Like, but right. It's actually, you know what I found is that those that have been on the world stage at something. So let, let me paint a scene. We're at um, Little League. I've got a, um, a, a, a soccer. This is a soccer. I've got an eight-year-old son. And there's a couple parents that are flat out screaming on the sidelines. Where the kids are eight, and you, everyone knows this picture. And I went back and I was talking with um, uh, some coaches and athletes in the NFL that I spent time with. And I, I just, I like, I was saying to them, I've heard this. I've, I know I've read the literature, but I've never been a parent in it. And every one of them were like, you know, it's just the last thing I'm doing is pushing my kid. Yeah. And so those that have been on the world stage, they don't push their kids because they understand something. They understand that to become really good at something, which is what this coach or athlete has dedicated their life towards, that it takes a long time. And because it's such a long arc to get great at something, that we've got to find something that we fall in love with, that we enjoy. So what I've learned from people on the world stage is that they just expose them to as many things as they can mm. and then really embrace that they've got to figure it out. The kids got to figure out if they want to stay in it or not. So I don't know. It's a great insight that I found to be valuable. That's wonderful. And I think it's, it's great opportunity for parents to hear that philosophy and you know, because so much of the time we live vicariously and we hope that our, our, our kids will create what we didn't create. And tough to put a kid in that, that kind of position. No, it's just, yeah, it's not. Yeah. If, I think if you knew what I knew about the process to becoming world, world class, yeah. you, not, not you, but you as in general. Sure. Maybe you, I don't know. <laughs> but we, we wouldn't push our kids. The dark side of becoming great is real. And America's not ready to talk about it. We're, we're doing the, the most insane thing to our kids right now. We're literally living through them, which is asinine. It's not possible. And it's, it's dis, disrespectful to the human spirit of an 8, 9, 10, 12, 14-year-old. And the carnage that takes place of those that pursue world class at a young age is ridiculous. Well, I was watching uh, the 30 for 30 with uh, Doc Gooden and Daryl Strawberry. And... You, you just see just the crushing demise with, with such talent and how the pressures and, and, and upbringing affected uh, what was the final result there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was a Met fan. I still am a Met fan, so, <laughs> you know, God help us all. So um, I love this discussion and, and the idea of mind versus brain and how do you define the two of those. would love your insights on that. Sure. The, so the brain is that three pounds of silly putty that sits in the base of our skull. And it is complicated and it is beautiful. And I don't know, I'm not, there are people in the world that they spend all of their time working to understand particular parts of the brain or the brain in general. 
and I'm fascinated by it and the conversations I have with them, they don't understand it. And so for anyone to sit and play like they understand what's happening in the brain at this point, at this juncture, um, well, if you're out there, I want to meet you, but I haven't met anyone yet. And it is beautiful. It's amazing. It's complicated. There's zero redundancy. It's physical. You can see it. You can touch it. You can probe it and see impact from behaviors and thoughts. And so it's literally that three pounds of silly putty that we don't know exactly what's happening yet, but it's very concrete. Um, that being said, the mind is something different. The mind is invisible, and thoughts are really the essence of the mind. And the conversation that's happening right now, and this has been happening since Aristotle, you know, way back, um, and Descartes had a point of view about this. If we go into like some of the romantic um, and big thinkers of the world, is that is the mind and body separate? Are they the same? Is there a ghost in the machine? Is there a spiritual world? Is there an I that guides thoughts? Or is it just, is our mind just the artifact of this complicated, beautiful uh, tissue that sits in the base of our skull? So if we go back maybe 10, 15 years ago, most people would say, uh, most neuroscientists, most, not all, would say that the mind is simply the artifact, to use that word again, of neurochemical and neuroelectrical exchange in the brain. There's no such thing as a self. There's no such thing as the I, the person, if you will. It's just this exchange. And we think that we have thoughts, but really it's just a stimulus response. Now the pendulum's swinging in another direction. And that pendulum is swinging to a way which is, no, no, if we really watch and observe, we can see from a mechanical standpoint, from great technology, that thoughts precede brain electrical activity. Mm-hmm. And that's a, find, that's a fascinating finding right now because it's shifting the scientific world in just a bit. All of that being said, the mind is our thoughts. The essence of the person mm-hmm. is the way I like to think about it. And there'll be people that argue this thought with me. And the brain is the neuroelectrical and neurochemistry that is responsible for um, responding to stimuli and uh, creating action from it. Mm. And so I, when I think deeply, I have awareness of my thoughts. And so that I is a very important statement. I have awareness of thoughts. It's like authority. Well, no, I think it as an observer. Okay. Right? More like the essence. So I, there's a statement that will say, like, you know, who controls your thoughts? That's a question, not a statement, but who controls your thoughts? And most people would say, well, I do. So then the question is big, like, what is the I in that statement? And then if the I is different than the thoughts, then there's, there is a difference between the two. And this is, feels really esoteric as we're talking about it right now, but it's meant to be, to really help um, understand how we can grow, whatever craft we're in, we have to have awareness of our thoughts. Otherwise, we're bouncing around and bumping around like a pinball, you know, based on the stimulus of the world. If someone's pissed off or someone cut us off, we, we don't have control of that? Of course we do. If someone doesn't show up or cancels something at the last minute or pulls out of a deal, we don't have control of our response? Of course we do. And so the challenge in the path of mastery is, can we respond eloquently, swiftly, and accurately in hostile and rugged environments as well as we can in environments that are, we're comfortable in. And those that can't do it in rugged and hostile or uncertain environments, they fall behind. Yeah. 
yeah, in real time, that's the practice shows up in real time when you need it in those hostile environments. I would that's imagine. right. Yeah, and hostility doesn't mean life and death for everybody. Right, it doesn't have to be a negative, and it's just it's an adverse situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. and where there's confrontation, or you have to move and think quickly, right. or something goes wrong. Yeah, and oftentimes, like in the business world, that. Um, one of the most important things we can do in business from my lens is, is be fully present mm-hmm. and um, get to the truth of what's happening in this moment and to do that in harmony with other people. What a beautiful way to put that. Yeah, and if we can't do that, if we're you know, just a bull in a china shop, we'll get some stuff done, but we're not going to build a community to be able to do it There'll again and again and again. Yeah, there's a lot of breakage. Yeah. You know? and, so, and if we can't be fully present, <clears throat> then um, we miss nuances. And the, the game inside the game is really about nuances. Yeah. You know, and so picking up a particular micro expression for somebody, a nuance, a tell, if you will, about how they're thinking and sure. feeling, all of that is um, trainable. But if you can't be present yourself, you'll miss all of it. Well, it's, I, I, I love that. It's, I, I think it's a UCLA study that says that 7% of the communication is the words that come out of your mouth, and 93% is all of that nuance, tone of voice, inflection, and, and body language, and things mm-hmm. of that nature. Uh, I was actually uh, uh, in an, uh, a meeting, uh, a listing presentation oh, at the end of last week, and I was given information that said the house was 3,700 square feet, when in reality the house is 4,400 square feet. So I'm there with, with, with Brian from, from our, our, our wonderful PR firm, Wicked, and, and my associate there, and the, the seller says, I told, pointing to my colleague, you that the house was 4,400 square feet and not 3,700 square feet. Well, at $1,200 a square foot, this has a, a marked difference as to what the value is. And I said, well, your home is worth between 4,4 and 4,2. And she goes, stop, we're done. The house, is, it's worth more because, it, well, there's more square footage and I would never sell it for that. And it was, okay, gut check in the moment. We'll call this a hostile situation, just the adversity. And the fact that she didn't throw us out in the first, what, the next two minutes, uh, but that we were able to work through it. And it started by, I've got to get my credibility back here, and I've got to be very authentic in this moment. And the last thing I ever want to do is be perceived that I'm flip-flopping, but new information, and whether we're done in, in eight seconds or not, you need to know that this is new information for me, now let's look at it from that lens. And that meeting, I think, went very, very well. And, and if nothing else, um, there was an authenticity with it, you know? Yeah, it's really uh, that authentic ability to be authentic. Yeah, is really important, and it's hard. It's it, you know what, everyone I know thinks they're authentic. Uh, Every, everyone I know, everyone I know thinks that they're right about situations mm-hmm. that are difficult, and everyone I know thinks that they're really good people. So then, who are the bad people? What a great question! That right? Is. Who who are these a holes? Who mm-hmm. are the pr- people that are like like who are they? Because I think that I, I don't know if you would agree that most people don't think of themselves as being evil, disingenuous, you know, um, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Well, that's what blame's for. <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, like, being able to um, really be honest and authentic is rare. Mm. And to then express yourself in that authentic way is rare as well. well it takes great trust. To, to be vulnerable, and I think that's part of authenticity is the vulnerability of who we are, you know? 
Well, we can train it. We can definitely train it. And so that's, it's the process of self-discovery. Yes. And through that process of self-discovery, then you know, we can figure out exactly how to become the person we want to be. So uh, shifting gears for a, a second with regard to, um, I created this body of work called Value Conscious Negotiating, and I'm putting my, my company through this. It's an eight-week series, and it starts with a premise that unless you believe you are worthy to succeed, you'll either sabotage it or deflect it. And I'd love your perspective on that one. From your perspective, is there truth in that? And how do you get to self-worth from that perspective? Okay, so the, the statement is really clean, which is like if you don't think that something's going to take place for you in the future, then it's probably not going to. You'll do something to sabotage or move away from it. And, you know, self, you're talking about self-worth, right? Mm. And so how do we build self-worth? Um, most people look to external sources to build their value. If I drive this or I wear this or this person says this about me, then I'm okay. And that's not unique to business or, um, or people that are not in sport. Athletes, it's the same deal. Sure. If, if, a, if I score early on or there's success early on, then I'm okay. And um, it feels like a relief when somebody outside, if this is your psychological model, if somebody outside of you gives you praise, then you're okay. That's a trap. It's a massive trap. And so self-worth, um, the only way to develop self-worth is by an internal relationship with yourself. By definition, a relationship with yourself is internal. But the relationship you have with yourself is how you build self-worth. So moving beyond what you do to who you are. And that is not something that our American culture values much. We're starting to see a trend towards it. But there's certainly some cultures that um, just because you breathe, just because you've lived on the earth for a long time, elders, if you will, you have value. Mm. And it has nothing to do with what you wear, how much you make, you know, or how popular you are on social media or otherwise. And that's the trap that we're seeing many people fall into right now, is building their worth based on external um, rewards. And so it's not complicated. It's been around in, in the science of psychology for a long time that the way you build it is the relationship you have with yourself. Mm -hmm. And that relationship is built on your inner dialogue. So to that, do affirmations, things of that nature, that vision of who you want to claim to be or who you aspire to be, and putting those in statement form, is that a vehicle that, that you support, that you like? Yeah, so there's lots of ways to be able to train inner dialogue. And I don't personally use self-affirmations. Um, again, I think there's good science and there's good research around it. Um, I'm... And, okay, so let me start backwards. Is that the reason we would do that is to get clear on the thoughts that we want to have. And we get clear on the thoughts we want to have about ourselves or our future or what, whatever. And so forcing language, and whenever you write something down, you're force, it's a force function, that you're forcing to choose words. And to get those words outside of your head, to externalize those words, like get them out off the hard drive, is really an important process. And then writing them down, that's great. I, I, I love it. I'm not a huge fan of self-affirmations because when I do them, I don't feel authentic. And so I can't know how to teach it from that. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean there's not good research and science around it, um, but for me, it's not, it feels something that doesn't, it doesn't quite sit with me right. 
So I come to you, I'm, I'm really talented at what I do, and I want to get to that, that level. And my mind is talking negatively to me. How do you deal with me? How do you, how do you support me? In, okay, in so the first, the first order of business is awareness of mm-hmm. your thoughts. Mm-hmm. So once you have awareness of your thoughts, good, bad, ugly, whatever they are, like hopefully we would want to move you to have awareness without judgment. Okay, so good and bad is like judgment. Okay, so first order of business is like, oh, that's a thought. Is that thought productive? Is it helping? Is it getting in the way? That's interesting. It's not. I'm feeling small, whatever it is, right? So awareness of your thought first, and then guide the thought. Guide the thought to what? That's the question, and that's where the work comes in. Mm. So through discussion and or journaling or writing or mindfulness, whatever um, tool or process that we would choose, that you would choose, um, you would become more familiar with where you wanted to bring your mind to, but always a place you can bring, we can bring our mind to, is the present moment. Mm-hmm. So what's happening now with your breathing, with your body, what's happening now in the environment? And that's a way to gate out all the noise and get to the signal of now. And so how do we do it? Awareness, journaling. Is breath part of that in the immediate? And are you a proponent of breathing and, and taking that time just to come present with with what is the upset or whatever that is? Yeah, so the, the, the reason that the breath is really compelling and interesting is a long breath triggers what's a fancy phrase called the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the recovery system in our body. So when we take a long breath, it's paired with a moment of safety after we were chased by a saber-toothed tiger. After we're running extended distances and we're finally safe, what do we do? We take a long exhale. <sighs> like, and so, okay, good, I'm done with that. So a long exhale is paired with safety. So that's interesting. So the long exhale triggers the recovery process. Most people, when they're keyed up in, they're in an environment that's intense or they've created intensity for themselves, that a long exhale can begin to trigger the recovery system to relax just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now, okay, if you haven't done the work beforehand and you remember in a moment of, of challenge or threat, if you will, oh, I should breathe. It won't be there for you. It takes 20 to 40 minutes to clear our brain of the neurochemicals of adrenaline, noradrenaline, uh, cortisol. It takes 20 to 40 minutes just to clear those agitative um, neurochemistry out of our system. So one breath isn't gonna do it. You'll become just a bit less agitated, but you're not gonna find smooth. Smooth, you said. Yeah, you're not going to find that place where it's just amazing to be you. Mm. It can still be good, but not the flow state or the zone or being in the pocket like athletes and musicians and and writers talk about. Mm. Okay, all that being said, yes, focusing on the breath is great because it's always now, it's always available, and a long exhale does promote just a quick little moment to begin the recovery process. So... um, Prior to a threat is when we want to train our ability to become calm. And that, that's mental training, right? Mm-hmm. So training breathing prior to. That's also why samurai warriors were so attracted to the Zen traditions is because breathing training was helping them find calm. It was also revealing insight and wisdom to them. And it was also increasing awareness of their thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so that's, the, that's really the combination. Revealing insight and wisdom, that takes time. Right. Awareness of your thoughts, that's a big deal. And then having a way 
to be able to guide your thoughts accordingly. Yeah, it sounds so easy. <laughs> no, and you know, I'm, I've got this other dialogue in the back of my head right now, like this is not interesting for people, I, but it's necessary. I, it's, it's interesting to me. I mean, I, and I, you know, listen, I, I train and I lead a company of 250 salespeople, mm -hmm. and they come from different walks of life, and they're met with a foundation of a contract, and there's a house, and what's the value of the house, but. What is that internal mechanism that drives them, and why do they want to be successful, and how do they define success for themselves? And I think that's a very interesting dynamic as to, you know, this idea of competition. You've been doing this longer than I am. You must be better than I am. And now I'm in my head, and I'm not thinking. I'm not certainly not present, and I'm intimidated by you because of whatever rules I've I've put into the, into the filter, so to speak. So how do you deal with competition? How do you how do you walk into a new environment and become What's the fortitude that takes? Because how do I get to that present state, into, which is the pre precursor to flow, right? So from a business perspective, we're not athletes now. When and something matters to you, yeah. you'll do whatever it takes. That's a really big statement. I'd say it again. When something matters to you, yeah. You'll do whatever it takes. And helping people align to what matters most to them and how this thing that I'm doing now is it has alignment towards that. That's a really powerful process. So like if we're really, if we're more concrete, um, I'll give you an example. Grandma can lift a car be, over, you know, to save her child, her grandchild uh, because that life matters. And like we have so much more that we can do and express and it's dormant in our system because we're constantly um, only tapping into just a small percentage of what's possible for us. So getting really clear of what matters most and then lining up every day towards um, being pure towards that. that. That is a foundational um, experience that I've seen consistent across people that have changed the way the world works. Being pure to that experience as opposed to an outcome. I'm not, I'm not driven by outcome. I've heard you speak of this before. You, you yeah. Well, there's, so there's external and internal motivations as mm -hmm. primary drivers for um, action. And it's not that external rewards and motivations are bad, meaning so external, like having a big house, big car, big bank, whatever. Um, it's not that they're bad. It's just that what happens when you reach them? You have to have a bigger house, a bigger car, a bigger bank. Mm -hmm. And that's not terrible in and of itself, but at some point it's a bit of a hollow pursuit. And there's no judgment in that. I've just seen that over and over again that once that um, thirst is... Uh, no, one, once that thing has been filled, whatever it is, that what's left? And what's left is the internal sense of who a person is. And so what we found is it's okay to have a really high external drive. Like, you know what? I'm going to make the, the, the biggest contract in the world. That's what I'm going to do. No problems. As long as the internal drive is slightly higher. Mm. And, so, and you can have both. And that's what we find for people that are exceptional in competitive environments is they have both. And it doesn't mean that, like I can think of scores of people that are only externally driven. They're some of the best in the world. But what happens when they're done, when the circus is over, if you've ever seen the, four, the, um, the fairgrounds at a circus after the circus has left, it's a mess. Mm -hmm. And 
But those that are really clear about how they want to live, the internal drive, I want alignment, I want to be present, I want to feel this, this, and this, I want to be connected to other people, I want to figure out my potential, and it just happens to be in real estate, or it just happens to be in piano, or it just happens to be in guitar, whatever, it doesn't matter, the craft is irrelevant, that having both of those is really great. And maybe necessary, but I've seen plenty of examples where people have high internal, no external, and they make a lot of money. Right. And people that have high external, low internal, and they do really well. There's a cost to both, though, both of those scenarios. Yeah, it sounds like if there's a why underneath it, the, long, the, the, the experience and the journey is that much more enjoyable as opposed to hitting those benchmarks of, of success yeah. externally. Like, here's a great example. One of the best in the world at his craft and um, makes probably top five in the world in what he's doing. And um, so I said, why? I asked him, like, what, what are you doing this for? And he said, well, I'm going to win my first world title. He's young. Mm-hmm. I'm going to win my first world title. And, um, but that's not because I want to be the guy. It's because I want, that's going to set me up to take a year to travel the world. So what are you going to do when you travel the world? Well, that's how I'm going to understand the cultures of the world. And when I understand the cultures of the world, then I'm going to feel like I'm a global citizen. And that's really what I want to do in life. So he's going to win a world championship, not so people pay attention to him, Mm. so he can travel the world, understand the cultures, to be a global citizen. It's really cool. It's wonderful. It's it's a great reason to get up in the morning. To to competition, um, you know, is the competition outside of our head, or is it just what we say to ourselves and how how we show up in that moment? It's, it's always inside. Yeah. Yeah. The, the people that show up around us that are skilled at what they do, they trigger a, a certain kind of way that we speak to ourselves. And so thank God we have people that are skilled that are working hard because it helps. It helps us keep the sword sharp. It helps. Um, and I know when you're going to bring your best that um, I want to be able to figure out my best as well. And that'll bring it out of me, you know, when we both have sharp swords. And so... Competition is not striving against. Competition is striving together. Mm. The original Latin definition of the word is about striving together. And it's, a, it's beautiful. It doesn't need, you know, I've got, there's, a, there's a person I'm thinking of. He's a CEO of, a, of a, probably a Fortune 250, like large company. And I asked him what the definition of competition is. And he said, well, I know what it is. He said, it's when I hold uh, I drowned my competitor and keep them underwater until there's no more bubbles. <laughs> oh, Jeez, okay. okay. And so that's okay. So there, there's it's draconian. Yeah, uh, there's an edge to that. Uh-huh. And then, um, and then when we talk to Coach Carroll, the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, what does competition mean to you? And he says it's everything. He says that's the way that we we relate to ourselves. We're striving together. We need each other mm. to figure out how we're going to be our very best. And so the competition is really a competition with yourself to clear out the noise, to clear out all of the limiting thoughts, to clear out all the stuff so you can be pure, you can be true, you can be in the present moment, in calm moments, in tender moments of love, in moments of you know, shaking deals or uh, shaking hands, finishing deals, beginning deals, as well as when others are watching, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it might be. Well, this idea of controllables, you know, non-controllables. Speak to that in terms, of, if you would please, Michael, the, 
the idea of because there's an onus with it you know I, I, if I say I, I left it all out on the floor those are the things I had control over versus the things that I don't have control yeah over. I mean that's it uh, it's simple little conversation to have with ourselves intellectually we understand that we can only control our thoughts and our actions that's mm-hmm. it Right, and there's a couple variations of that. Our attitude and our effort, like those, are variations. More concretely, we get to control what we say to other people, what we think about other people, what we think about ourselves, and uh, you know. But that's it. <laughs> it's our thoughts and our actions, and what masters of craft have relentlessly demonstrated to me and to you is that what they've gone, in, what they've invested in. Is, are those things that they have control over. So it's not control the controllables so much as it is master them. Mm. Don't just try to control your thoughts, but master your thoughts. What, are the, what, is, what does it sound like when you're uh, optimized? What does it sound like when you're completely pure and true to yourself? What does that sound like? And then train it and cultivate it and figure out, then you do one step before that. What are the triggers to that? And then master those triggers. So, and those are not not external triggers, but internal triggers. Yeah, and and then there's this thing called fear. You know, fear of success and fear of, do I really have what it takes? And what if I fall on my ass? Mm-hmm. And if you see promise in someone, yeah. and you're coaching them, and they you, you you see the block, how do you work through that fear? And does does loving and self acceptance come into to, to those equations as part of well, what it, you do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's certainly you know I, I got I've, there's not maybe a more powerful word than love. That might be the most powerful word that we we talk about. That being said, um, I'm not sure we're ready, like corporate America or entrepreneurship to really emphasize how powerful that is as a experience in life. And so talking about it is really important, but I'm also aware that there, there's like this trap that, oh, it's that soft stuff. Because um, there's nothing soft about being and becoming your very best. That's a very difficult path to go. Mm-hmm. And so... I feel like I'm distracted from your thought or your question, but the idea about being completely connected and authentic to yourself takes incredible work. Mm-hmm. And so how do we clear that stuff away? It's just honoring yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe the best way to do this, though, is to be there for other people consistently. And when we can be a great teammate or a great family member or a great tribal mate, that that in and of itself is part of the reason why we're doing this small little thing life like we're only here for a short amount of time I don't know what your afterlife thoughts are but like 100 years 75 years that's that's a you know come on we take ourselves way too seriously we certainly do you know so how how do what are we doing here yeah really like what are we doing here that's a really I think important question to entertain and then once we start to entertain it more it's like you know it's not so freaking serious there's intensity but it's I think that I take myself, we take ourselves way too seriously, you know, too often. So being more fluid and fun and playful and figuring out how to love deeply, all of that stuff matters. And how many houses you acquire, I I think it's great if you can figure out how to authentically be yourself on the path. And you know this, that, you know, money follows simplicity, money, there's all these phrases, money follows a lot of things, but certainly authenticity is part Mm -hmm. of the process. Well, you touch on, you know, 
how am I there for my teammates and, and, and my colleagues and business associates? You're talking about being of service, you know, and, and from that consciousness, what does service look like? And if I, if sometimes I have to get there from the outside in, I don't love myself or I don't know how to love myself, but I know how to take care of you and at the, not at the expense of ourselves, but it certainly can open that door. And, and boy, what a great, I mean, when you're working with the Seahawks and, and what I've heard you talk about, uh, the relationship with Pete Carroll, and it sounds like people are free to be themselves and then from that place, they give that much more. Yeah, and that's a, it's an important nuance that you talked about. People are free to be themselves. And the way we like to think about it is, so it was going into the first Super Bowl. Um, let me pause. This stuff about the mind is complicated. Hmm. And it's nuanced. And it might seem really simple and easy, but my God, like there is so much research. It's nearly impossible to keep up right now with the cutting edge research that we're finding. There are some true principles to pay attention to. And one of those principles is exactly what we're talking about. And the word though, that so I pay attention a lot to words and precision of words because it's the first reveal of, um, of thoughts. So body language, actions, and thoughts are, are, I'm sorry, and words are all reveals to thoughts. And to celebrate a person is very different than to let a person be themselves. So this is what happened like I don't know, four years ago, whatever, first Super Bowl, and we started hearing the media talk about, wow, Coach Carroll and the Seattle Seahawks, those, those coaches let the athletes be themselves. It's like, whoa, that is so wrong. There's no letting. There's a celebrating who they are. But that word celebrate, you have to figure out who another person is to celebrate who they are. And that takes work. Mm. Most people are so consumed with like, hey, aren't you figuring out who I am? Aren't you celebrating me? As opposed to, no, I'm going to do the lonely work and figure me out so I can have a solid base. I can be on steady ground so that I can figure you out. Mm. And that in and of itself is what, that's the, those are the relationships I want to be in. And you hear it all the time from husbands and wives like, I don't know, she just makes me better. I don't know, he just makes me better. And you hear teammates that are great teammates that say, I love playing with that guy. I love playing with her. You know, she brings out the best of me. It's because they're not sucking all the air and oxygen out of like, it's about me. And I'll tell you what, narcissism is a real deal in business and it's a real deal in sport mm. and it's nauseating. And if you're a narcissist, hello, you know who you are. <laughs> you know, and everyone right. else knows who you are too. They right. just tolerate you. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, I know. I love, I love the idea of celebrating, celebrating the human spirit because that's what it is. Well, you have to find out who they are to celebrate them. And that is, that's a real, that's a wonderful process. That's what long enduring relationships and transactional relationships can both benefit from. Let's figure out who each other are, but mm-hmm. you got to do your, your work first. Right. Yeah. 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 You've got to, you've got to bring your A game in order to support others and bringing theirs as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, this comes from one of our associates uh, at Partners Trust. And the question is uh, about focus in general, how to systematically handle multiple buyers, multiple listings, the constant phone calls, emails, and text messages day. And he puts into the night uh, all night long uh, that we seem to be on 24 hour call, adding family, friends, and personal life just adds to the issue and the feeling of not in control. And I, I, I you're smiling. You have thoughts. Oh my God. <laughs> that, that, yeah. That, I think that's the deal, right? In modern modern times right now, probably for the ages as well, but we're moving at such a fast clip. 
And the amount of information that's coming in from us uh, into us every day is outrageous. So how? Okay, if you think about like practical things, it would be do the most important thing or the most difficult thing early in your day. And that's just a function of willpower because you have more spunk or, or, or fire in the early part of the days to do that difficult thing. And the lazy part of us wants to procrastinate, you know, and like the fearful part of us wants to procrastinate and do that at the end of the day. And then we miss that until the next day and the next day. Okay. But the true, here's the true statement about what I heard from the thoughtful question is that how do I keep up with the external noise? Well, let's get to the signal. And the signal is, can I be fully present as me now? And can I cr increase the frequency of me being able to do that? So the noise to signal ratio or the signal to noise ratio is um, really an important process to pay attention to. And how do you increase signal? Well, that's mindfulness is an incredible strategy, but it takes, you know, it takes time to train. And so trying to just keep our head above water without doing some sort of work, interior, interior work, I feel like it's just a strategy, mm -hmm. you know? So, and I don't know, uh, there's no simple solution. Turn off Twitter, turn off social media, turn off email, turn off CNN. I don't think that's the answer. Mm. I think the answer is um, to prioritize you being grounded and present in any environment you can be in. And then um, the decisions about how to handle the noise that comes in from outside of you does become easier. So discernment becomes a very critical component. What, uh, what do you mean by discernment? Discernment, what I allow in, what I, what I'm, I mean, it's all out there, but where do I pick and choose based on the priority of what is my objective? Yeah, I see it as like more passing through than allowing in. I don't see like the interior as um, like a cup. And if something comes in, it stays in, mm -hmm. you know, um, that is a nice image though, because but I don't see it that way. I, th I see it more as like like just a pass through. And but if everything that's passing through is just so noisy, and it, it's just so distracting, it helps me. It pulls me away from being connected to now and being able to make decisions that lead me to who I want to be and where I want to go. So if answering emails is is the deal, then we got to we got to do it. There's no easy answer to that question. That's a freaking hard question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let him know you thought he had a very hard question. It was yeah. Good. Yeah. yeah, it's... Um, yeah, and, and email is uh, in and of itself. I don't want to get too you know granular with it all, but it is how do we prioritize our day and how do you prioritize... It's basically how do you prioritize your mind, it sounds like. And it, it, is that the work when you say... Yeah, that's uh, the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, awareness of your inner dialogue and then being able to guide it. Yeah. And there's lots of ways to do that work. Mindfulness is certainly one of them, you know, which is sitting mindfully, eating mindfully, breathing mindfully, so that you can understand the activity of your mind, quiet it down, and guide it accordingly. It might be one of the greatest accelerants for um, anything that we want to do, is that training. But to think about layering a strategy for, to, back to this question, layering yeah. strategies on top of it, I, I, they, they feel like it's popular to think about hacks. I'm so not into a hack. Like I'm much more interested in sturdy and robust practices that will hold up to the ages as mm. opposed to this temporary patch or fix. And um, so I, I hope that answers. Final question, meditation, do you think that helps in terms of quieting the mind and creating greater awareness in the mind? Yeah, I don't, I don't use the word meditation okay. um, because it conjures up tree-hugging, granola-loving something Birkenstock, you know, that there's nothing wrong with any of that. 
but in the environments that I'm in, that doesn't sell. The science of mindfulness, you could replace mindfulness with meditation. Mm -hmm. And people in the industry would say, yeah, 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 same thing, or just about. But the science of mindfulness and the history of mindfulness um, are real. 2,500 years ago, people were, mind were doing mindfulness training, a la meditation. And that's, um, research is catching up to it now. We're finding that people that train mindfulness based on research, um, between like a minimal dose of six to optimal somewhere around 20 minutes a day, um, are increase, in focus, uh, increase in attention, uh, decrease in fatigue, increase in quality of sleep, uh, increase in flow state, which is the most optimal state a human can be in. Mm. I mean, those are, real, those are real things. And yeah. so that's a powerful training process to invest in. The, the problem is that it requires work and it's difficult to do. Right. And tell me you have 20 minutes a day that you can carve out. But if you knew what I knew about it, you would do it. Right. Maybe you are doing it. I don't know. But, you know, starting with one minute a day would be better than zero. That's and, building a muscle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like whatever the, the um, you know, it's not really a muscle, but I, I know that for that phrase. Like yes. It's like, yeah, it's like building a, a skill. It's a consciousness. Yeah, to be, to be present. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Dr. Michael Jolie, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Uh, such informative information. And if someone has uh, curiosities and wants to get more information about what you're doing and how you're doing it, where may they reach out to you? Great. And, you know, first, thank you for inviting me into your community. And yeah, I hope, I hope that this is going to help, you know. And so thank you for that. And the second Absolutely is... my pleasure. Yeah. So if you want to find out more, um, social media, website, that kind of stuff. Uh, so there's two places you can go. Findingmastery.net is a podcast uh, that I'm doing as well. And it's been a blast. I hope you're enjoying yours. Very um, much so. Yeah. So you can find it's us there. Stuff. And then at Michael Gervais is a social handle on mm -hmm. Twitter. And then Facebook is uh, forward slash Finding Mastery. And then the, we've built a community right now. Like we're curating um, just a little tribe and a little community that people can be part of as well. So that's, that's been fun. And then on the corporate side of things, um, I've been fortunate enough to partner with Coach Pete Carroll on a business. And you can find out more information there on winforever.com. And you can find us on social, on Twitter, same handle there. And that's just been, it's been great to partner with him. He's just such a thoughtful, intelligent leader that really understands culture. And so we put the principles of culture and the principles of mindset training together. And we're having a blast doing it. Yeah, it's a great side. I've been to it. And it, it, it's, it's, it's beautiful work. And yeah. uh, so thank you again so much for being with us. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.